First off, I want to thank everybody. Um, I really want to thank you for investing in this study this year. Um, I know this has been a little bit of a different year. It's not quite what we're used to, um, but I am so thankful for everybody who has really wrestled with this. Um, I've had a lot of questions and comments and people just really wrestling with this study. And I'm just so thankful for everybody who's really spent some time in it. I know it's different. Um, We've had to move away from the, we have to get the right answer, um, to we're just spending time with Jesus and seeing how God speaks to us. And so just thank you for all the time that you've spent in it. We're not done, so this isn't like a, oh, we're done with the study, moving on. No, we're going to go through this through the rest of the year. So um, keep wrestling with it, but just thank you for putting the time in and um, for trying this out with us. Um, And so Thanksgiving is a week from tomorrow. Um, Can you believe that? It's come so fast, but the stores have skipped right over Thanksgiving and jumped right into Christmas, haven't they? Um, My husband and I saw Christmas stuff in Walmart in August, so um, they've been ready for Christmas, and they've just hopped right over Thanksgiving, and sometimes that really bothers me because I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. I love Christmas, but I don't want to skip over Thanksgiving and jump right into Christmas. Um, But with that in mind, our study today fits very well with Christmas. Um, This is the word become flesh and dwelling among us, Jesus coming as our way to truly know God. Um, So it fits really well with Christmas, and it's a great lesson to take with us into this holiday season. But I don't want to stop, and I don't want to not stop and be grateful at the same time. Um, We we spent some time this week, if you got to look at your study, um, the seven I am statements of Jesus, and you were encouraged to pick one to reflect upon. And um, if you didn't get to do that, or if one resonates with you differently, today, I encourage you to spend time in gratitude for who Jesus is to us. Now, with that in mind, I was a little ambitious with this lecture. Um, I don't know if it's because I knew I was going to be in the sanctuary and it felt a lot more serious, or if it's because it's the end of the year, Um, but I first decided I want to go over John 1, and that alone is ambitious. That is a huge chapter, and there's a lot in it. But then I really loved these I am statements of Jesus, so I was like, okay, well, I also want to go over all seven of those. And then I got to the seventh, and I heard a sermon that pointed out an eighth. And so I started with John 1, ended up with all those eight, and realized that this morning in the next 40 or so minutes, We're going through the whole book of John, so be prepared. Um, uh, Just track with me as best you can. I'm sorry, I'll move kind of quickly. But I really do think that this uh, study of Jesus is everything is so wonderful to just start with as we enter into this holiday season. And so with that, before I jump into this uh, lecture, let's pray together. Father God, today I am just so grateful and in awe of you sending Jesus for us, Lord, and that we can truly know you and how absolutely amazing and wonderful that is, God. I pray that today we would be struck with fresh awe of you, Lord. 
Lord, I pray that you would remove any distractions, God, and that you would just help us to focus on you, Lord. Would you speak to each of our hearts, whatever it is that we need to hear today, God. If we need comfort, Lord, bring comfort. If we need your grace, Lord, pour down your grace on us. If we just need to feel your love today, Lord, may that be what we feel as we sit here today and talk about your word. I thank you so much for your word, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so um, the slides today are just going to be the scripture text that we're going through since we're going so quickly through it. Um, so first off, we're going to look at John chapter 1, um, but I'm going to just go through the first five verses because there's a lot just in those first five verses. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right away, our passage takes us back to the start of Genesis with the words, in the beginning. This book here, the book of John, is about the creator God acting in a new way within his much-loved creation. So in Genesis 1, the climax of creation is the making of humans in God's image. And here in John 1, the climax is the arrival of this human being, the word become flesh. So the first book of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, begins with a divine doing. In the beginning, God made. Here in the fourth gospel, it begins with a divine being. In the beginning was So John is going behind and beyond creation to the who that preceded it. According to Dale Bruner, this text is trying to tell us that all of creation, including what is most internal to us, has the imprint, the shape, and the mark of the sun upon it. So this is how John's gospel starts, with a sort of recreation, if you will. This tells a new story of God giving light and life into the darkness of this world. So according to Bruce Milne, the other Gospels started with Bethlehem, but John begins with the bosom of the Father. Luke dates his narrative by Roman emperors and Jewish high priests, where John dates his in the beginning. Matthew and Luke take us to the cradle of the manger, Mark to the prophecies of old, But John takes us back into the mists of eternity. In the beginning was the word. So when I speak a word, it is in a very sense a part of me. In fact, the way that a human's inaudible thoughts relate to their audible words is like the way the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God. And we long to know him, don't we? And we long to know what the people important to us are thinking. And we get this desired knowledge when they speak to us. Conversation is so important in relationships. And our great God talks to us most specifically through Jesus. 
We long to know who God is and what God thinks. And in Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible. Through Jesus, we have God's innermost thoughts and his heart seen in the deeds that are as profound as his words. Through Jesus, we experience and we come to know God. Dale Bruner says that this flesh-born revelation is the greatest thrill of the prologue. The fact that the invisible God came down in and into human life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and explained himself in the clearest and most credible way is itself gospel. This is very good news. So you can't know God except through Christ. Not that you can't know anything about God. You can know lots of things about God. But to truly know him, we need Jesus. Tim Keller says that God has not given us a watertight argument to prove that Christianity is true. Instead, he has given us a watertight person to prove that God and Christianity are true. So Jesus Christ is our watertight person. You have to look at Jesus. Use your mind. Look at his claims. Look at his teaching. Really think. And if you are willing to do that with an open mind, you will find that in the end, there can be no argument against him. He is perfect, and his life towers above all other lives. So do you want to know God? Look at the word Jesus, as the word, is God made vulnerable, made killable. God became vulnerable for us, sharing in our humanity. So today we are going to look at the word. We are going to fix our eyes on Christ and who he says he is. And so we're going to look at these I am statements of Jesus throughout the book of John. The first is, I am the bread of life. This is found in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 35. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So this episode in the book of John comes just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 men with the one boy's packed lunch. And here they are asking for a sign. Now over the break, you will have some homework. (laughs) Um, Please don't hate me. Um, But we are going to study the book of Ecclesiastes together. Um, So... It's been broken up for you into weeks instead of days. 
you'll need that. Um, <laughs> um, so you have five weeks, but I think we have more than that over the break, and so you have plenty of time. This is our way of hoping that we all stay in the Word together. Um, we picked Ecclesiastes, especially because the book of Ecclesiastes, if you pull out one verse or one chapter and read it and try to apply it, it's going to be very difficult, where if you read the book as a whole, it's going to make a lot more sense of that one verse or that one chapter. And so we're doing a book study. This is our first book study, not our last, um, but this is our first book study together. Um, so there's a lot of chances for you to look into the background and then just read the text and look at each chapter and outline it. Um, once again, we've given you every step, and that's because you can take this, apply it to any book of the Bible, and do your own book study. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to do every step. Um, I'm not checking your homework. It's okay. Um, just do whatever you can. It's all about spending time with the Lord, whatever that's going to look like for you over the break. Um, it'd be a good idea to chat with your group over the break as to what you're getting out of it, because when we come back, talking about all 12 chapters in one day will be a little bit of a struggle. So um, just spend some time in Ecclesiastes over the break. It's just spending time in the Word together. And the reason I bring this up here is because the message of Ecclesiastes is over and over again that we are a hungry people. We are a hungry people. We have a drive to pursue things and to seek a sense of purpose in this world. And one sermon I heard said that it's almost as if Jesus was reading Ecclesiastes as he said the words, I am the bread of life. And that's why, once again, our topic over the next few weeks is Jesus is everything. You see, Jesus is our staple diet. He is our fundamental meat. Just as God sustained them day by day with the manna in the wilderness, Jesus is our sustenance. God wants us to be so filled with Christ, to have life with Christ, to dwell with him into eternity, and he has gone to the very greatest of lengths to win that future for us. And Jesus doesn't just say that he is bread, but that he is the bread. He is claiming to be that for which all human beings most long for. I am the bread of life. And secondly, I am the light of the world. This is found in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the theme of light that banishes darkness is one that comes up over and over again throughout our scripture. And John is once again bringing us back to Genesis 1. Light is shining into the darkness of the world. This claim to be the light of the world would have sounded blasphemous to some because it is the Lord God himself who is the light. But here we learn that without Jesus, we live in darkness. And the invitation of Jesus here is that if you lean into him, you are leaning into the light. 
And if you think about it for a moment, if you have a flashlight shining in the darkness, the only way that it is going to be bright is if you lean in. And that is what we are called to do with Christ, to lean into him. But the magnificent and wonderful thing is that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 14, we are told that we are the lights of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So when we have the light of Christ, we have that light in us as well. And that light shows his goodness, his truth, and his grace to others. Now, the story that precedes this particular I am statement is that of the woman who is caught in adultery. And I like how the New King James heads this section, an adulteress faces the light of the world. And this light was shining within Jesus. When Moses went up on the mountain and asked to see God, he saw God's back and he had this reflected glory. But with Jesus, it's an intrinsic, inherent glory that shines. And really, when you think about it, it is only in the context of the light that true reality can be known. I am the light of the world, he says. And the next one is, I am the gate. This is found in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So as the light of the world, Jesus desires that no one should go on walking in darkness. And so in the chapter preceding this I am statement, he heals a man who is born blind. Now, in a sermon by Luke Ijaz, I don't know how to say his last name, um, he really enlightened this passage for me. And he encouraged you to imagine for a moment being blind from birth and immediately able to see. The world is suddenly expanded to include realities that you could have scarcely imagined. Your life is filled with experiences that you previously thought were impossible. This man entered into a life that he never thought could be his before. And Jesus was the gate into that new life. So Jesus is the gate for the sheep. This is a radical statement because in a world that so often pushes Jesus into the periphery, here Jesus is setting himself unmistakably at the center. There is no stepping around him. When it comes to salvation, the truth is it is only access through Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember this story about this man born blind, you might remember that the Pharisees are very skeptical about this healing. They questioned him and his parents and wouldn't believe that this miracle had happened. They even throw him out of the synagogue. You see, the Pharisees prided themselves on being the gatekeepers to life with God. 
And as this no longer blind man is brought to them, they try to rob him of his newfound life. They want him to doubt Jesus. Rather than celebrating with him, they throw him out. But Jesus is no rival gatekeeper. He is the gate itself. And as these Pharisees went to great lengths to keep the gate closed, Jesus instead is the gate who stands open to all who will come. He gives them open access and the freedom to come in and go out and find pasture. So the contrast brought about by this story of the blindness to sight is a great example and picture of how our lives are enriched when we enter into the gate. You see, when Christ died, the veil or the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The barrier was removed, and now we have access to God through the work of Christ. He is the door to the inner sanctum. I am the gate, but he is not just the gate for the sheep. He is also their good shepherd. This I am statement is found also in John chapter 10 in verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So this passage comes immediately after the previous one and is closely related. Jesus is the gate for the sheep, and he is their good shepherd. So here we learn that he is a God who gives. The first thing we learn about our good shepherd is that he lays down his life for the sheep. But he is also a God who protects. The test of a true leader is when the wolf comes. When trouble comes, he is there. That is the greatest hope that we have as Christians. We can count on the ultimate shepherd of our souls to be with us no matter what. So he is a God who gives, a God who protects, and he is also a God who knows. He knows his sheep. This is a relational word. He doesn't just know of them. He knows them. He is a deeply relational God. But not only does God know his sheep, but his sheep know him. Do you know his voice? Do you recognize it above all other voices? Think about how many different voices you may have heard today. Demands, maybe expectations. But is the voice of Jesus recognizable above all the others? He may not be the loudest, and he won't come to you with a bunch of demands. But can you distinguish his voice above all other voices? And I think the way to do this is to live in our Bibles reading them day by day, because the more time we spend with him, the more familiar his voice becomes to us, and it will hold central stage. 
The next I am statement is I am the resurrection and the life. This comes right after the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verses 21 through 26. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So as you probably know... Oh, it scared me. <laughs> as you probably know, as you read on through this passage, Jesus calls Lazarus out of his tomb and he comes out alive again. However, the point of this statement, this particular I am statement, is that there are two kinds of death. There's physical death, but there's also spiritual death. Death is more than just the absence of a heartbeat. There is another kind of death spiritual death or separation from the living God. A person may be physically alive and yet spiritually dead. One commentator said that in the Garden of Eden, we walked away from life with God and we became, as a race, the walking dead. I love Martha's faith here, though, in her simple response of, I know that he will rise again on the last day. But Jesus is not talking about the future, Martha. He's talking about the now. You see, the miraculous raising of Lazarus is simply a sign. And if you were with us when we studied the book of John, we talked about all these different signposts along the way, miracles that Jesus performed, but they were all signs pointing to something greater. And it's the same here. The miraculous raising of Lazarus Lazarus is a sign of Jesus' power to give life. Not just physical life, but spiritual life here and now. The greatest hope we have in this world for life after death is the resurrection of Christ because it means that we too get to participate in the resurrection The physical death cannot destroy the life that Christ puts in a believer. So I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And he also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, our next I am statement. This is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So we have a home in our Father's house that can never be taken away from us. Jesus is personally the road that will take us to this eternal home because he went ahead where we couldn't go overcoming sin and making him the only way to God. 
This is why the believers of Jesus were first called the people of the way. Because Jesus spoke about being the way to God, the way to the kingdom. So Jesus is the way, but he is also the truth, reality. Before the universe existed, Christ was there. All things were created through him and for him. So if we want to know the truth, we must first go to Jesus and know Jesus. Not just know about him, but truly know him. Have a real relationship with him. How do you know what is true? By going to the source of all truth and the embodiment of truth is Jesus. So he is the way, he is the truth, and he's also the life. Real, genuine, active, and vigorous life. Life that is devoted to God and blessed. Life that is everlasting. In him is life. True life. Through Jesus, we have a life that is both purposeful and active. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the seventh I am statement, we're making it right through these, is I am the true vine. This is found in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus as the vine is the picture of strength, of organic growth, stretching out in different directions. And it is the picture of what the church should look like with Jesus at the center. And the Father cuts off any branch that does not bear fruit. We're given this warning. But how do you bear fruit? By remaining in Christ. So don't be complacent with following Jesus, but remain in him. Now, he doesn't just say that he is the vine, but that he is the true vine. So throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often referred to as a vine. Israel was God's much-loved people who were meant to demonstrate his glory to the people around them. But the harsh reality is that they became a pale imitation of what should have been. But what Jesus is saying is that Israel was merely a shadow of what was to come. It was all pointing to Christ, our true vine. So we started with looking at John chapter 1. And in verse 14 in that passage, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word here used for made his dwelling can also be translated as pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. John shows us that the whole tabernacle experience of the Old Testament points away from itself towards the one who would come and embody everything symbolized by this tent of meeting, God with us, Emmanuel. So the degree of your fruitfulness as a Christian is directly proportionate to how close we stay to Christ, 
how much you feed on his word and how intimate your relationship is with him. So this is where the list of I am statements usually ends. However, a sermon that I heard by Paul Blackham really helped me see another I am statement that I think is really powerful and a great way to end today. It's found in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. It says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So once again, we find ourselves in Genesis 1 as Jesus enters another garden. And here we see Jesus confronted by a mob. But throughout this whole scene, the gospel writer is making clear who really is in control, who is the only player on the scene, Jesus who goes out to meet this mob. Now verses 5 through 6 shows Jesus having his simple reply of, I am. Now in the NIV, it renders it, I am he, but it would probably be more properly rendered, I am. This is the last of Jesus' I am sayings, and I think it authenticates all of the others. You see, he is doing far more than telling them that he is the one they are looking for. He is saying something tremendous, full of power, which makes them fall to the ground. So in Exodus 3... When Moses asks God who to say sent him, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Here in our chapter stands the glorious eternal word who created all things. This crowd who came to defeat him with a few soldiers and weapons is knocked to the ground by his merely speaking his name. They realize they are standing before the divine word who gives them every breath they breathe. And they lie prostrate before him. In chapter 13, we were told that Satan had gotten a hold of Judas. And that is why I think he gets special mention here. He also fell to the ground. So sin began in the Garden of Eden, and there the curse was pronounced and the Redeemer was promised. And here in this garden, the eternal seed entered into conflict with the serpent once again. But you have to wonder, why is it, after they experience this immense power and glory, do they still rush to take him? Part of us shakes our head, wondering how they could be so stupid. But... I think the scriptures are meant to be a mirror into how we ourselves live. How do we treat Jesus even when we know who he is? What is our attitude toward him? And so that's how I wanted to end today, looking in the mirror of how we treat this Jesus.
Do you know him? And if you do, what is your attitude towards him? Don't we often become complacent? Don't we push him to the periphery when in truth he is the only gate, the only way, and the gate that provides our protection? Do we spend time in his presence so that we can get to know his voice as the sheep of this good shepherd? Or do we put time with him on the back burner in the midst of the chaos of this life? Do we feed on him as our very sustenance because we know that he alone satisfies as the bread of life? Or do we often go to other things that provide us a fake form of satisfaction? Do we lean into him so closely so that his, the light of the world can illuminate our lives and thereby illuminate us, making us lights for his glory? Or do we often lean into other things, or even people, who we tend to rely on instead? These are the questions I wanted to leave you with today. And I hope you can wrestle with them over the break. And as you spend time in Ecclesiastes, I hope you remember that we are a hungry people. But there is only one who truly satisfies our deepest need. So here is the amazing thing about Christmas. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And the best counselors are the ones who have been through a problem or a struggle and come out on the other side. Those who understand. And oh, does Jesus understand. Hunger, grief, betrayal, rejection, torture, injustice, you name it. He experienced it all. So we need to go to him. Tim Keller notes that some of us say we went to God and he didn't answer our prayer. In fact, he abandoned us. Well, God understands that too. He was in the garden and he asked for this cup to pass and it didn't. He was turned down. So frame your struggles in the knowledge of the word become flesh. Because you can go to him with anything. He knows, he understands, and he has been there. Do you trust him like that? So the song I have for you today is called Time In Between. I heard this song months ago, and I only remembered a couple of lines from it, but I just knew it was the one for today. So I spent hours and hours and finally found it, and I was so happy because this song is perfect for today. It talks all about the time in between Jesus' birth and his death and how that time in between truly brings us to trust God and it brings us to our knees in worship of the wonderful God we serve. So let's listen to this song. Father God, I thank you so much for the time in between. I thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. I thank you for Jesus who lets us know you. Lord, I thank you that you are our sustenance. You are our life. You are our light. You are so much to us, Lord, and we trust in you. God, may we lean into you during this um, season, this holiday season, Lord. May it just be a time where we get to really experience more of you. Thank you for all that you've done for us in sending your son. 
We love and praise you. Amen.